0: How many of you remember the days of childhood and the fact that we used to know how to play? Uh, I think many of us would agree that we could do more playing if we could. Uh, some of us, our bodies won't let us play anymore. I understand that part. But the thing is, just stay, staying young at heart. And I think so many times as we age, we begin to lose that ability to, to experience things in a new way. And, and, and it's amazing when you come to God's Word. It's a depth of knowledge, but not just knowledge, just the whole idea of understanding the heart of God more fully. That should be just those things that bring joy to our hearts. And that's what we're going to kind of look at this morning. If you have a way to see God's word, look at Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2. Series introduction, you've heard this every week, and I'm going to continue to drive it home because this is the key. Joy is the unshakable assurance that God is in control of all the details of our lives, the confidence that ultimately we can trust God in everything that comes into our lives, and the determined purpose to praise Him in all things. If you were to look at the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi there, you would find that this is everything that he's sharing. If you were to put it into one... One way of thinking or one way you'd see it right here in these words. So today we're going to look at joy, Rod. Choose joy. God is at work in us. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, Paul gives a plea for self-denial, humility, concern for others, and unity with others. Then in verses 5 through 11, he gives us the perfect pattern, the perfect example of all these things, and it's found in Jesus Christ. Then today, we're going to be looking at the very practical ways that we can live out what he put before us in verses 1 through 4, but also live out what Jesus clearly represented as we see there in verses 5 through 11. So we go from something last week, something deeply theological, to something this week, something very, very practical. And that's the way Paul writes many of his letters. So today, look at the introduction. For growth to take place in a follower of Jesus, it is dependent on both divine sovereignty and human responsibility. This growth is a process of God working in, in, uh, in, uh, working in, and us working out. Okay, not us working for our salvation. That is God working in us but us working out our salvation, obediently surrendering and following. And basically, this is the path to true joy. You know, it's interesting, and we've discussed this many times here. When it comes to our salvation, what part do we truly play in that salvation? What part of it is human responsibility? And, of course, we know our salvation definitely has that divine component to it, that whole idea of God's sovereignty bringing us to salvation. And many of us would have to admit that it's hard to reconcile the two. What part of it is us? What part of it is God? We just need to be obedient to what we know. But really, what does that look like? That's hard to get your mind around sometimes. But you know, when we begin to live and work out our salvation and see God working in and through us, I think it's more clearly defined what God expects of us based on his word and what we can expect of God based on his word. And that's some of the things that Paul is trying to help us to see here. Now, before we go any further, let me just say this. This path to true joy, I want you to think about this. When we're younger, we feel we can do anything. How many many of you remember those days? I I remember uh, in my teens, physically, I felt like I could jump to point A to point B and be okay. Sometimes I've Failed at that miserably and got hurt. Many of you know that. Then in my 20s, you know, I started thinking about where my life may go, you know, what could God do with my life and that kind of thing. I started feeling like it's called me into ministry. But when I was in my 20s, and maybe some of you have been there, maybe it's just my own arrogance, I believe I could be president of the United States and do a great job. I mean I, I mean I really did. I mean I thought how how hard can it be? You know? And, and, and I remember thinking all these different I could be a CEO of con- of, a country, of, a country, of a of a country of of a business. I could do this. I could uh, I started thinking all these different things. I mean I was pretty confident in myself. Then I got into my 30s. I started life became a whole lot more complex. I used to think I really did. I used to think that if we were sick or needed something to address our physical bodies, we go to the doctor, they'll tell you how to fix it or they'll fix it for you. That's how naive I was. <laughs> but the point is I'm trying to make is as we get older, we, we tend to, to have more, I mean, life becomes more complicated. How many of you agree with that? Sometimes it comes in with family. Sometimes it comes in with marriage. Sometimes it comes in with all these different aspects of our lives. And before we know it, we're just trying to keep up the outward parts of our lives. And, and then all of a sudden, uh, we start to look into the, to the mirror. And we begin to see that there's some things that we're reminded of that our bodies basically are perishing. This past weekend, we had the privilege to take care of our granddaughter all night long. And um, they trusted us. I don't get it. But anyway... So uh, I go out and I have her outside and I'm holding her and he's like, "Oh, this will be a wonderful picture." I'm like, "No, can we just not like, enjoy the moment? What do we need pictures? You know that whole thing." And, and she takes these pictures and then she's, "I'm going to send you the pictures. He looked really good." Sends me the pictures. And, and how many of you are just so disappointed now when you're looking at your pictures? <laughs> I, I mean, I, I almost got physically depressed. I could feel it just. Really, you know, you know that guy. Now she was cute. She did it. It's almost like she was posing for the picture and all that, you know. But but the point I'm trying to make is this: Listen, our outward person, okay, if you don't know it or not, is perishing. Now, how many of you are encouraged this morning? Okay, (laughs) it is, and you know it. You're living the moment, right? But here's the point: The inward person, however, at the same time this is going on can be progressing. Did you know that? Did you know that while this part of us is perishing, there's an inner part of us that God can orchestrate that is progressing and getting better, and God is using it, and we can find hope in that, and we can find true joy in that. But the outward, it's hard to find a lot of joy in that sometimes. But the inward is where God does his work. So how can this be a reality? First of all, we see the work of human responsibility. In Philippians chapter 2, let's just read verse 12. We're going to break it down here in just a moment. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. When I'm with you, I see you working. Now that I'm absent from you, you're still working. He says, here's this challenge. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, this does not mean that we, as I said before, that we're working for our salvation. God did a work in us, okay? He's the one that instigated our salvation. We came to, to terms with what it means to be saved. We repented of our sins, uh, turned to faith in God, and all that kind of thing. But beyond that, there is something we have responsibility for. Paul, we need to understand, is writing to those who are already saved. They are true followers of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians two eight nine, he says it this way: For by grace you've been saved through faith. Okay, who provided the grace? God did. Okay, so we responded to grace. How do we respond? Through faith. But that really wasn't of ourselves. He provided the way. And then he says, "It's not of ourselves. It is the gift of God." It's not our works as anyone should boast. That means when I stand before Jesus one day, I'm going to stand there, and, and he's going to say, why should I let you in my heaven? I'm not going to have anything in my account that I can use to say I, I, should, be, I should be permitted in because I did this, 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 and this. That's not going to get you there. It's all of what God has done through providing Jesus as our Lord and Savior that we get in. It's his act of grace so we're not working for salvation, but we are working from salvation. There's something that is an expectation that God has for us. So if we are not working for our salvation, then we, it must imply that we're working from salvation. If that is so, verse 12 seems to be pointing out that there are certain responsibilities, responsibilities that God has for us concerning our salvation. And so what are they? Well, when we are saved... Here's what we need to understand. First of all, when we're saved, we're justified. Here's what that means. We're declared righteous, which means we have standing with God. Jesus provided that for us, that we could stand before God, that we could have that salvation. And so the work of Jesus provided that. But then there's a process that takes place in all of us, and this is a renewing process this is the part where God does a work on the inside, okay, to bring that progression of faith. It brings that perfection of us becoming more like his son, and that's where the joy comes in. So as we age, there's a progression inward, but not necessarily outward, okay, but there is a work going on inward. So how does that take it? how does that come there? Now, the process is called being sanctified. And it literally means being set apart. And and what does that give us? Well, it gives us evidence that we're in right standing with God when that process starts and continues. And it's also a process of becoming more like Jesus. And we'll see that in just a moment. Now, here's what's the interesting part. Jesus said, I must go that the comforter may come. The comforter is the Holy Spirit, okay? So the Holy Spirit orchestrates this transformational process, this renewing process, okay? So, Jesus provided my salvation, okay? I can't stand before God and said, I did this, 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 and this. No, it's what I received in Christ by grace, okay? Now, the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit's going to come. What's he going to do? He's going to do something in human beings uh, that has not happened up to the time of Pentecost, Now, the Spirit of God now lives in me, dwells within me, and I am a work in progress at that point, okay? Now, here, here, I'm just going to lay it on the line. If you don't feel like you're a work in progress, I might, I would really check and see if I really have salvation. I'm just going to be honest with you, because once we come to know the Lord Jesus as our Savior, there's something that happens within us. There's an inner conflict when our flesh is warring with the spirit. And the spirit of God desires so much more than where we are. And it's literally trying to move us towards following Jesus' example. But if we say, say, yeah, I've been saved, I did that, I prayed the prayer, I went forward, it might have been here, 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 whatever it means, but you don't sense there's a work going on in you then you, may, you might be rightly justified in doubting your salvation because the Bible always gives the impression that God is at work in you. It always does. And so why, what does it look like? Well, our responsibilities are outlined here in verse 12. And the first thing we say in our outline is we must follow Christ. We must follow. The defining mark of a Christian life is being obedient like Christ was. Now, where, where did his obedience take him to? Took him to the cross, right? Was that an easy path? Absolutely not. It was not an easy path. But his obedience took him to the cross. Now, what does it look like for us? Look at what he says in verse, 12, verse uh, chapter 12 again, the very beginning. Therefore, my beloved. Therefore is referring back. He's basically saying live selfless lives. Uh, do this, do that when it concerns others just like you saw Jesus do in verses 5 through 11. You you remember that study? Okay, that's what you're to do. Therefore, my beloved. So therefore is referring back to the previous verses, which we have a reference to the humility and the obedience of Christ. We're to follow that example. It cannot get any clearer than that. So uh, 1 John chapter 2 says this. He who says that he abides in him, Jesus, Ought himself also to walk just as Jesus walked. Now, walk, what does that mean? That, that means that we're living like he lived. We're on a journey. We're In the journey process, we're becoming more like him. So, someone has said this. I've had people say this. And here's what they'll say. I hear you say this a lot. Well, it's not just me saying it. The Bible says it. It basically implies that we are to follow Jesus' example, that, that God wants us to follow Jesus' example. It's all through the scriptures. What is that? How do I know His example? You got to know His word. You got to know His word. And I'm going to be honest with you if this is all you're getting for the week, is right here in this room, you need a whole lot more you got to learn how to, to take in the Word of God. you got to learn how to, 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 to meditate on the Word of God. you got to understand certain aspects. Let me give you some ideas about what you can do. Read the Gospels. If you were to say, okay, you tell me to follow the examples of Jesus. Read the Gospels. Find the examples. How did he respond to people? What, what, how did he conduct his life? What was important to him? What did he actually say about sin and how I can live more holy for God, set apart for God? Read the Gospels. Look at his example. That's the greatest picture you're ever going to have of Jesus is right there in the Gospels. Another word that describes our responsibility is surrender. And it speaks of obedience and unity. Now, there's no way to fulfill our responsibility and our salvation apart from surrender. we got to learn to surrender. Now, think about it. What does surrender mean? Oppressing armies coming over the hillside. You're there. You're a sitting duck. <laughs> There's nothing you can do in and of yourself but yield or submit to that army that's coming in. It's literally, you, you've tried to live your life As much as you know how and your flesh wants certain things and and you desire certain things in your life, the process of what God's trying to do in your life is get you to turn your back on that and to surrender to the work of the Spirit of God in your life. That's the terminology when it comes to this idea of surrender. So what does he say in verse 12? Therefore, my beloved, speaking of believers, as you have always obeyed. Now, the phrase have always obeyed does not mean that the people who made up the Philippian church obeyed perfectly. How many of you have ever obeyed perfectly? Hmm, thought I saw a hand go up. I was about to pound you. Okay, no, I'm just kidding. None of us. None of us. Here's what it literally means. What he's saying is that we have a disposition of submission and surrender. That even when we miss it, even when we miss it, there is that thought that we missed it. There is that thought of an inner struggle that happens within us. There's that thought that, man, oh. And the only way we can make it right is we got to go back to that point and surrender it. Surrender it. And so what he's talking about is not perfection. We can't do that in these bodies. How many of you know there's a flesh fighting against every step that God's trying to do in your life? Your flesh fights it because the flesh wants what the flesh wants. And he's basically saying we've got to learn how to to, to surrender our flesh to what the Spirit wants. So what they heard, here's what he's saying. What they heard, they surrendered to it. Meaning they align themselves to God's expectations by following obediently. And Paul's encouraging them to continue. Now, you won't do it perfectly, but he's challenging us to do that. And when we miss it, because this disposition we have is to align ourselves with God and his word and who he is, we know we missed it, and the point is we come back to that point. To surrender. To surrender. Now, here's a question. How many of you have ever missed it before, and you know you missed it? What what did you feel inside? I guarantee you it wasn't joy. You say, how do you know that? I've been there so many times. You know what what settles up in me, and we're going to see some of this in just a moment. What settles up to me is when I don't surrender, here's what it feels like. I feel like I'm living my life in contradiction. That I'm contradicting what my life should really be about. How many of you ever sensed that before in your own life? I mean, maybe you didn't describe it like that, but that—that feels like that. I feel like I'm a walking contradiction, and it will feel that way until we come back to the point of surrender. And that's what Paul seems to be telling us. Even as he says this next word. Another word that describes our responsibility is integrity. It speaks of wholeness and ownership. The word integrity carries the idea of wholeness meaning the same in private as in public. It literally means not a double life. A double life. Now here's the test. Are you living a double life? How many at times in your life you flirted with living a double life at least? You were one thing to one people. You were another thing to another group. You were one thing when you showed up here at church. You were another thing when you left the church. And you're this when you need to be that. And you're this when you need to be. Now, it means wholeness. It's the whole of who you are. You're not a walking contradiction. You're you're, you're someone who's in touch that, yes, there is this fight that goes on. You're someone who's in touch with, yes, but you've also come to the realization that I'm never going to be fulfilled feeling like this. This inner struggle is going to create conflict in my life, and I'm going to feel it. And guess what? I guarantee you when that's there, why do I know this? I've lived this. There's no joy. There's no peace. It's all right there. How many of you have ever um, gone to a difficult time and your kids kind of saw you kind of play it out? and They saw the bad side. And then all of a sudden someone walked up maybe from the church or whatever. Oh, hey, brother, how you doing? You ever seen your kid go? <laughs> what have you just demonstrated to that kid? Got a little double life going on here. I mean, we got to pay attention to these things. Look at what it says in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Paul's basically saying, man, when I was there, you you were doing it the right way. And man, when I've left, I continue to hear great things. But what happens when that's not in play? (laughs) No peace, no joy. But here's what you got to understand about what Paul's addressing here. These people worked unto the Lord. The work was that part that made them whole. It gave their life meaning. They literally could not imagine not doing ministry and not serving others. Because it defined who they were. They took God's word in such a way. They received it in such a way. It became a part of who they were. And when they didn't live that way, they felt the contradiction. Okay? Now, let me say this. I think sometimes it's healthy to feel the contradiction. Because here's where I've seen the Holy Spirit work in my life. When I'm up here and I'm trying to do, and I'm doing this thing over here, and all of a sudden the flesh sees a way to enter into the picture, and it enters into the picture, I feel like a contradiction. Now, the Holy Spirit is not gonna leave me here, at least the way I've been dealt with. Okay? I will be miserable. Until I fix the contradiction. Sometimes it may be picking up a phone and calling someone. And apologizing for something that that you've done or whatever. Sometimes it's God, you told me to do this. And I, for whatever reason, chose not to do it. I didn't surrender. Until that is made right. And the Holy Spirit's not going to leave you alone until it's made right. You're a walking contradiction. There's no peace. There's no joy. Another word that describes our responsibility is progression. And it's literally the idea of moving forward towards ultimate fulfillment. Now, everything that we understand that God has started, he will complete. And that includes what he started in us. Now, now this may blow your mind, but this is the way the Bible says it. You're a work. You're a workmanship of God. He's not just saying, Pleasant City Church and all those who make it up, you are a workmanship of my masterpiece. No, you personally are that. Wow. That that feels pretty good to be singled out by the one who created us, The sovereign ruler of the whole universe is basically saying, I am his workmanship. I am his masterpiece. He desires to do a work in me. That feels pretty good. But it also is pretty intimidating, isn't it? It's pretty intimidating. And the thing that we need to understand is that God desires for his work in you to continue. Look at what he says in Philippians 1.6. Being confident of this very thing, that he who started the good work in you, he's going to complete it all the way to the point until you're standing before Jesus himself. Wow. Now, do you really want to stand in front of Jesus being incomplete? Do you think some of us will? Yeah, I, I, I think there will be some of that. And the reason I know that is because of the type of judgment believers, followers of Jesus are going to face. Did you know we're going to be judged on whether we get rewards or not? Did you know that? It's, it's right there in the Bible. And, and, and so those who don't know Jesus as the Lord and Savior, they're going to stand before a judge he's going to sentence them to judgment. But those who are believers in Jesus Christ, we're going to be there and there's going to be the opportunity for rewards to be placed before us. You ever thought about that? I hear some people say, well, you know, I don't care about the biggest mansion there as long as I get in. That attitude stinks, just to be honest with you. I question that attitude. Man, we should be in awe of what he has done and what he desires to do in and through us. And it's a progressive work. Philippians two 2.12 says this. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now more in my absence, work out your own salvation. That word working out has a twofold meaning. It's self-initiated activity, and it's intended to be completed until completion. That's the work that he's desiring. So it says, work out your own salvation. What does that mean? Does that mean we have responsibility? Yep, we do. But it's not to get us salvation. It's the, the work he desires. Our salvation is not even completed there. But we're in the God, uh, the Bible says, we've been made righteous before God. Therefore, we have a right standing with God. But the salvation and its completion is still continuing. It's sanctification. One day it'll be glorification. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But we have a part in it. So again, this does not mean that we're working to earn our salvation. We're working from that salvation. So when a follower of Jesus is working their spiritual development, they are working out what God is attempting to work in. Have you ever thought of this? God's trying to work in you. In you. How many of you have ever sensed that? That, that's what he's desiring to do. A work that one day will come to completion. Ephesians 2:10, Paul says it this way: for we are his Workmanship. We're his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, that this should be a part of who we are. This is our walk, this is our journey. So once we are saved, listen, we become co laborers with God as it re- relates to our spiritual development. He points out, He reveals what is needed, what's needed to be addressed in our lives. Our response to that should be repentance when there needs to be repentance. It should be surrender when it needs to be surrender. And it's always a pursuit towards following the example of the Son. Because God himself said he is the example. He's not a example. He is the example. He is it. Sometimes, however, that work he's doing in us How many of you have noticed many times it comes through adversity? Don't you wish he only worked in the good parts? Now, why would he choose adversity to do a work in us? Here's, based on my experience, this is what I see. It's hard to say it this way. Sometimes I need adversity to come into my life for him to get my attention. You ever notice that? I need adversity to get my attention. I don't even like saying that because it's like, bring it on. I'm not saying that, God. (laughs) But that's when he kind of shakes my world to refocus. How do we know that's true? Romans 5, 1 through 4, look here on the screen. Therefore, having been justified by faith, that means we have salvation, we have peace with God now, How did it come about? Through what Jesus provided. Through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. This is us. It's now our new identification that we have salvation in Christ Jesus. We have peace now. We have that potential there. All that's been taken care of. Into this grace which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, not only that, I mean, we're sitting here, we're glorifying him. Life's great because we've got salvation. We're going to heaven when we die. All that's great. But not only that, we also glory in tribulations, the difficult times, the adversity, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Why would he put hope at the end of all this? Because I don't know about you. But when God uses adversity in my life to, ch- to get my attention, to turn my disposition, to move me in the right direction, I always see it as a work of him, and I find hope in that, to know that my salvation is real, that I am a work in progress. Because I come out on the other side saying, how else was I supposed to know that? He is a great God. Wow. Blows your mind. How many of you have gone through some of those difficult things in your life, and you look back on it, and yeah, it's hard to accept, not sure you ever want to go through it again, but you thank God for it because it it revealed something. It showed you something. That's what he's talking about here. So the most important thing going on in our life is that we are working out what God is working in. And so that's that's important for us to get that. Now, another word that describes our responsibility is discretion. It speaks of seriousness, awareness the way he says at the end of verse 12, work out your own salvation, how? With fear and trembling. Why would he put that there? Well, let's, let's dive into that. First Peter 5 says this, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now, listen, just because you're saved doesn't mean you're off limits to the enemy. The enemy can, can do some big damage in your life. Matter of fact, you're more of a focus of the enemy, I believe, when you're a believer, a professor, a professing Christian, a true follower of Jesus Christ, than the unbeliever. Because he's seeking to destroy you. He wants to make God very little in your eyes. That's what he's attempting to do. So fear and, tremble, for fear and trembling, there seems to be two ideas here. We're to fear and tremble because of what's at stake. William Barclay. One of the commentators, many of you probably know, he said it this way. This is not the fear and trembling of a slave uh, cringing before his master, nor fear and trembling at the prospect of punishment. This fear and trembling is born out of a sense of our own creaturelessness and our powerlessness to deal with life triumphantly, that we can't do it on our own. That there's got to be a work in us through God and the empowerment in which we see. So what's coming against us, our flesh, and what it's capable of should really cause us to fear. How many of you ever seen people destroyed by their flesh and their desires? Yeah, it can destroy a person. Not only that, the enemy who's stronger than even our flesh and stronger than we are apart from ourselves, that should haunt us. So when we're working out our salvation, when we're seeing God work in us, what he's desiring to work out of us, we should understand that we're not just left alone for that process. Our flesh is going to get in the way. The enemy is going to get in the way. And we should be fearful and trembling over the fact that they, your flesh, and the enemy can cause a lot of damage in the midst of the work that God desires to do in your life. Right there in the midst. Next. Next. Verse 12 talks about human responsibility. Verse 13 talks about the work of divine sovereignty. And the first thing we see there is the subject of the work. Now, now here's here's what it says, uh, verse 13. For it is God who works. Now, God can mean a lot in Scripture. Here, it seems to imply the Trinity of God is at work in the believers. How do we know that? Because Jesus paid the price for our salvation. He provided for us an example on how to live. The Holy Spirit, who revealed Jesus to us, produces fruit, develops our gifts. He's the one calling the shots in our lives. The Father is the one who's directing the whole plan of our salvation. So all are involved in our salvation. So verse 13, for it is God who works. He energizes. He empowers the work. Next, we see the location of the work. Where's God working? Look at verse 13 again. For it is God who works where? In you, in you, the whole person, your intellect, your emotions, your will, your total being. We are being worked out through God. Next, we see the purpose of the work. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do. The part of this verse has what's called two infinitives, to will, to do. The will of God is manifested in his purpose for you. Now, here's what you got to understand about you. God has A generic and a specific purpose for you. The generic purpose for your life is that we make him known to the world, that we follow his son's example, and that we glorify him. But then there's a specific purpose for our lives. How do we know we have a specific purpose? Because of this right here. There's only one of you, there's only one of you who's ever existed or will exist which speaks of our uniqueness. Does that imply that he has something specific for us? Absolutely. If not, we all be the same. And so basically, he's saying you're unique. You have a personality. You have giftings. You have life experience. I want to take all that. I want to work in it through you. And he's desiring to do that. This specific purpose is what he desires to do through the life of a follower of Jesus. Much of his will, however, is conditional and comes by way of the believer's submission and obedience. And this will determine if we have joy or not. The second infinitive phrase in the verse is to do, which is the power he gives us to do his will. God never commands us to do something that he's not willing to empower us to do. He empowers the called. And by the way, we're all called. Our salvation was a calling out. And you came. And now, perfect example, Moses. Moses, I want you to to do this. I want you to lead my people out of Egypt. What did Moses do? He started with all the excuses we do, right? I can't do it, God. Why can't you do it? I just don't feel equipped. I, 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 I feel. I mean, I'm 80 years old. I mean, w- w- you really want this of me? What, 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 you know, sudden, I don't say I can't speak. I'm not well spoken. What did God do? Aaron, your brother will help you. Well, God, I, I, I don't. Who am I say? Who did I say sent me? Tell him I am dead. I mean, I don't know about you, but I can. I'm, I can relate to Moses at this point, right? Well, how am I going there? I'm just supposed to walk into the palace. I'm supposed to start making all these demands. He said, well, what's that in your hand? That's my walking stick. <laughs> Lay it down. Mm, snakes, don't want that, right? <laughs> no, but what I'm trying to say is every excuse Moses gave, what did God do? He gave, it, he gave those things to equip him to do what he called him to do. And he'll do the same thing. He'll do the same thing with us. The goal of the work. If we are standing before God here today and he were to say, what do you desire me from me? If you, if, if, if you ask him that question, his answer would be for you to be like his son. That's what brings joy. Not, that's not only the way that's going to bring joy to you, but listen to this. It's going to be bring joy to the heart of God. How many of you are impressed that you have the ability to bring joy to the heart of God? You see, we just sit here like that's nothing. But we can bring joy to the heart of God. That should be just one of them things that's just wow. And it tells me where we are spiritually when we're not wowed by that. Philippians 2, 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do. For his good pleasure. Good pleasure expresses great joy and satisfaction. That's what he desires to do in through you. Next, we see the work of maturing. and What does it look like when the two cooperate? When there's human responsibility and divine sovereignty. What's all that look like? Well, it's going to be an evident work. And we see that in verses 14 through 16. So the work of maturing, there's unity and not division. Paul uses... Two words to describe what brings divisions. Look at verse 14. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Complaining, what is that? It's an outward expression of an inner rebellion that shakes its fist in the face of God concerning his wisdom and his love. How many of you ever thought of it like that? Really, when you think about it, what are we complaining about? All the things that are happening to us all those very things that God may be wanting to work in us through. And what are we doing? We think we're just complaining to one another. No, we're complaining before God too. And we're basically saying, I don't want any of this. I don't want any of this. And we're basically saying we're questioning his wisdom. We're questioning what he's allowing into our life. I've been there. I know. I've been there myself. How many of you realize that God took complaining very seriously? If you don't believe me, go back to the Israelites they're out there in the wilderness. They moan, They complained. They saw miracle after miracle after miracle. And every time they complained, God blessed them, but it also brought consequences. He takes complaining very seriously. A second word we see in verse 14 is disputing or arguing. Disputing is an inward rebellion where the mind weighs the truth of God and your own mind sits in judgment of him, condemning him and his actions. Wow, never thought of it that way. But again, who's orchestrating your life if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? He is. He's the one weaving these things in your life. He's the one that's doing a great work in you. Both reveal a person who is motivated and living by the flesh, and that that, that flesh is warring against what the Spirit wants. Next, we see purity, not defilement. Look at verse 15, that you may become blameless, harmless, children of God, without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Wow, that's a verse for us today. Blameless means to be judged by others to be pure. They look at you and they see purity. Now, let me ask you this. Would that bring a pleasant result from everyone? Not necessarily. Sometimes that's highly offended, Uh, those who are impure how many of you ever notice that you're just living your life you're letting god work in in and through you you're trying to be everything god desires you to be you're living out the example of god how many of you're amazed at where criticism comes from when you begin to do that it's there harmless means unmixed undefiled you're separate you're set apart without fault means spotless and then put the meanings of these words together, you have a picture of what the Bible calls holiness. But then he says, there's this that's contrasting that. There's a crooked way that's out there that means it's a bad direction. There's a perverse generation, it means a generation that's permanently distorted. I mean, if you see that loud and clear right now? Permanently Distorted. Three times in Romans chapter 1, God gave them over. That's permanently distorted, permanently defiled. We live in all that, and yet we're called to be undefiled. It's amazing. It means that this world never leads in the right direction. We're saved out of this world, yet we live in this world. And God is pleased when we live in purity in this world. Next, the work of maturing light, not darkness. Verse 15, that you may become blameless and harmless children without fault, living right in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Jesus is the light of the world, and we are called, listen to what we're called to do, to reflect his light while lifting up his truth. Ephesians 5.8 says this, For you were once darkness yourself. That's where he found you. You were in darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. That means reflected light. Walk as children of light. But then he says at, the, at verse 4 to 16, Holding fast to the word of life. You know what it means to hold fast? How many of you ever held onto something and you could see the whites of your knuckles? You held so hard, so firm to. You could literally see the whites of your nose. That's a picture of what it is. That life and death depends on you hanging on. And what does he say? What you're hanging on to? The words of life. The words of the perverse generation are words of death. But the words of life come from God himself. And we are to white knuckle and hold on like our lives depended upon it. When it comes to holding on to that. The work of maturing joy, not regret. Look at what he says at the end of verse 16. So that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain and labored in vain. Paul's saying, don't make me regret all the time I invested in you. Don't, don't, don't make this great work that God's working in you and out of you. And he's trying to create something in you. Don't let it go to a waste. And then we have the idea of the application. There is no greater joy in life than God working in you as you work out your salvation through a heart of obedience. So the real question, it really comes down to this. Is this going to happen in your life? Here it is. Do you surrender to the work God desires to do in and through your life? That's really what it comes down to. Do you want him to do it? Here's the way I see it this morning. There's three people in this room, and we're closing with this thought. Those in which they don't even have that salvation. That great salvation that God has for those who are walking in darkness. He wants to give you his son Jesus and the provision that he made of Jesus on the cross. That your sins could be forgiven if you turn from that sin and turn to faith in him. That's the greatest need you have in this room if that's your situation. Secondly, you may be a believer, a follower of Jesus sitting in this room. But deep down, you know you're a walking contradiction because you know that you're one way here and another way there. And you try to, and you feel it. You feel it. There's a war that's going on, there's something happening in you, and you haven't had peace for a long time. You haven't had this joy because it's not like it was. There's a contradiction that you're living right there. Or maybe you're the follower of Jesus, you're sitting here today. And you have joy, you have peace because you recognize the work that God's doing in your life. And and listen, here's what blows my mind people on their deathbeds I've seen, I see God working in this. People who've got a terrible health report, and, and, and all of a sudden it looks so hopeless to most people, but Because they're in tune and align their life with God himself, they see that God is capable of doing great things in and through this very thing that they thought they could never face. That's an amazing place to be, by the way. And that's where true joy and peace comes no matter what hits our lives. Would you pray with me as we close? Father, we come to you right now and we know, Lord, that we're are the a people who are in great need of you. Father, we know that we need salvation first. That's the only thing that, that's going to keep us from hell's gates. That's the only thing that's going to keep us from continuing to walk in darkness in this perverse generation. Father, help us to realize you are our only hope through the provision of Jesus Christ. But Father, I pray for those that are sitting in this room and, and Lord, I've been there we're a walking contradiction because you say this. You say we're your child. You say we're the object of love, of your love. You say that we're pure. You say that we're holy because of what Jesus has done to, for us on our behalf. But yet we're far from it we're where our decisions are taking us and the attitudes that we have and all the different things. We're literally a walking contradiction. And Father, when that's in my life personally, there's no peace, there's no joy. Father, I pray that you'll help us to take your words serious this morning. That we can live the life that you desire us to live. A life that's beyond anything this world could ever offer. A life that no matter what comes into our lives, we find hope in it because you're doing a work in and through us and it won't be completed until we see you face to face and sometimes the trials and tribulations will send us to that point where we truly see you face to face and at that time that's when our faith will be sight that's when our joy will be at its truest that's when our peace will be at its truest but father help us to realize that we can experience all those things even right now because we can see you working in us. We can find that peace, we can have that joy. Thank you for what you showed us here this morning. Help us to leave this place as people who seek your heart. We thank you for it, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for being here this morning. You're dismissed.